0: The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, author Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger discusses the significance of relationships in the way we share the gospel. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. It's great to be here, Mike. I'd like to begin by just finding out what led you into the study of theology in the first place.
0: I was back in college, Northwestern College, St. Paul, Minnesota, and in my junior or senior year, I was interacting with a couple of professors, and one, Walter Dunnett, uh, really introduced me to the discipline of systematic theology and just how it's all-encompassing uh, while there is the descriptive element in it talking about what the church has believed in the past, and like there 's also that prescriptive element about what do we believe and present today uh, for the church and the society at large and i 've always had a desire to uh, bring theology into the present context, so that was uh, very uh, intriguing to me in terms of that all encompassing enterprise that also has present day import. So that's really what led me into the discipline, and it's the study of God, and I could think of nothing greater to study than the study of God, and especially
1: the triune nature of God. Well, Somewhere along the path you moved into Trinitarian theology specifically. How did that come about?
0: I was a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a couple of my professors there had encouraged me for my doctoral studies to consider applying to King's College London to seek to work with Colin Gunton. Professor Colin Gunton was a leading Trinitarian theologian. He died a few years ago, and uh, he's a major or was a major player in terms of the Renaissance and Trinitarian theology. And so working at King's in London was uh, really a great introduction into Trinitarian thought forms, and it was just great to be able to work with him. And then there were others such as John Zasoulis who would come in and uh, teach and lecture. And uh, others, many others as well, so it was a great uh, place uh, within which to study Trinitarian theology.
1: You're author of a of a book called Trinitarian Soundings in Systematic Theology, in which you uh, take a look at Colin Gunton and his work mm-hmm. through the eyes of a number of authors. Maybe we could talk about that sure. a little later, mm-hmm. right now. As we introduce you, in your, we mentioned that your passion is the integration of theology and spirituality with a cultural sensitivity. What is an integration of, of uh, theology and spirituality? What's the difference, and what do you mean by integration?
0: Well, I think that theology by nature is a very uh, integrative discipline. It's very much concerned for various domains of thought and life. And uh, as a Christian, I think everything we're about should be about spirituality. And while I'm not doing spiritual theology in that classic sense, the discussion that James Houston, Professor Houston, would be about, I have great respect for his work. Uh, but I, the, the types of theological thought forms I'm working with within Trinitarian theology, participation in the life of God, union with Christ, those are central uh, motifs for me In my own writing and research, and then that it has import for cultural sensitivity dynamics uh, in our post-modern, post-Christian context of how do we engage alternative spiritualities, and we need a robust understanding and awareness of the spiritual dimensions bound up with the holy love of God in Christ and this power of the Spirit. So that's bound up with what I'm thinking of here.
1: By spirituality, you're not talking about uh, necessarily a uh, spirituality in the sense of of mysticism, or you're talking about a, a holistic Christian life, mm-hmm. as theology informs it, particularly Trinitarian theology, what is practical about Trinitarian theology then in the in the Christian life?:
0: The way I look at Trinitarian theology is that when it 's framed in light of the holy love of God. In Christ, and that we're called to participate in uh, this God's life, and not simply to emulate, which is part of our our work, but actually to participate. It gets us beyond a form of religion of rules and legalism and sin management, as some will talk about it. You know, of do's and don'ts. And Paul is very much against that in his book on Colossians, uh, where there was this kind of faulty asceticism of. Uh, don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls who do, type of thinking back in the ancient world. And the Christians were getting bound up with it, and they thought that their identity with Christ was really about sin management, keeping the rules. And Paul's saying, you know, our our life with Christ, our life in Christ, goes far beyond uh, sheer uh, concern for uh, moral rights. It must be about union, communion. Within the the life of God. And so he says in Colossians 2, 9, and 10, uh, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. And that's the kind of union that Paul's concerned for. And you said before that it's not about mystical or mysticism per se. Well, to me, there is a a mystical component. It's not a kind of Buddhist mysticism, uh, a pantheism. It's not that at all. But the reformers were very much concerned for union with Christ in the spirit where our hearts are wed to his heart, and so there really is that participation, and I would call that mystical, but it really is bound up with a holistic frame of reference with practical import to such things as you mentioned, and getting beyond legalism
1: toward a real relational model of spirituality. Now, By relational model, you're talking about how we get along with each other. Mm -hmm. And that
0: God communes with us heart to heart, uh, not simply thought to thought, but really heart-to-heart because that's where the best communion really does take place. And so our our thoughts, our actions, our moral uh, initiatives really flow out of that heart-to-heart communion with God. And I like to pick up from Martin Luther and his sidekick Melanchthon when uh, Melanchthon and Luther both in the 1500s talked about, you know, we don't change uh, hearts by changing behaviors. Our behaviors are changed by our hearts being changed. And that only occurs by way of the Holy Spirit being poured out, as Romans 5 5 says, the love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And as our hearts are transformed, then these other things flow from them. And that's what I would call an affective spirituality that's bound up for me with Trinitarian thought.
1: Now, cultural sensitivity then flows right out of that in an authentic Christianity that's coming from the heart as opposed to a list of rules. Right cultural sensitivity is going to be the natural byproduct. What are some of the ways that you've focused on with regard to bringing cultural sensitivity into that process?
0: Well, because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, uh, that God uh, did not seek to, I like to use the imagery of, didn't come to take back Jerusalem or take back America from his enemies. And so often in the evangelical Christian movement, of which I'm a part, we're so often concerned for our rights and taking back America from those who live very differently from us. And while I want to follow the Bible through and through and live according to God's uh, desires for us as his people, uh, nonetheless, God is calling us to love on people in a way where we're not seeking to uh, shape them by way of certain kinds of behavioral frames of reference, but as we relate to people relationally, not behaviorally, and, and they get to see that we really do care about them, I think that's where there's the opportunity for people to actually have a change of heart themselves. And we've been known more, as it's been said elsewhere, and I agree with this, we're known more in the conservative Christian movement for what we're against than what we're for. And so as I'm engaging in cultural issues, when I'm working in Portland, Oregon, and it's not the Bible Belt, and when I'm working with the Buddhists and others, and they're very concerned about what they've seen in evangelical America of uh, seeking to take back America from them. There's a lot of fear that they have of us. and I think that an imperfect love uh, is driven out by fear, but a perfect love casts out fear. And When they really come to understand that we're concerned for their well-being and that we want to, to care for them with the love of God and Christ, that changes the dynamics of how we deal with people with different spiritualities and different moralities. And so I think it's that relational context uh, that really gives birth, comes forth from God's heart, but gives birth to a kind of cultural engagement that is not about uh, uh, enforcing uh, Christianity on people, but it really comes from the inside out, not the outside in.
1: In the Gospels, Jesus is described as a friend of sinners, Mm. and yet. In our evangelical traditions, we tend to shy away from being friends of sinners. The last thing we'd want to be is a friend of sinners. Mm-hmm. We want our children to go to, to uh, private Christian schools. We want to keep ourselves in kind of an enclave of, of uh, our friends within the church, not outside the church. And yet, it sounds like you're talking about the need to be friends of sinners like Jesus was. And for the same reasons as Jesus was, because people are human beings created in the image of God, and that it's it, it's the heart of God reaches out to all people. So often, though, Christians are told to make friends with non-believers as a kind of a with an ulterior motive of getting the gospel to them, right. so that a person is made and switch. It's a project yeah. where the real goal is right. to get the gospel to them, as opposed to them being the goal as a person worthy of friendship because the love of Christ is in us and he's a friend of sinners. Absolutely, Uh,
0: With that whole frame of reference, uh, Trinitarian
1: theology gives
0: rise to a concern for people as people and not as a means to an end of something else, so I couldn't agree with you more that we don't engage non-believers and build relationships with them simply to get the gospel to them, because that has a There's a very um, problematic notion of the gospel if we don't see the gospel itself in terms of its DNA as relational. That's the good news, is that God desires relationship with us. And if I'm only after relationship for the sake of seeing people come to Christ, then relationship is not the goal. Relationship is a means to an end of something else. And again, so often that's a behavioral, rationalistic frame of reference, just understanding certain things about God and doing certain things rather than Heart to heart communion. And so uh, when I talk about a desire to, to, to build relationships with people, that goes beyond even whether they come to Christ or not, because I think Jesus would want me to care for them, uh, uh, for the, the oppressed, those who are um, in hunger and need. And even if they don't come to Christ, I think He would still feed them, He would still care for them. And so we should too. But of course, we always want to see people come to know Jesus personally as Lord and Savior. That's our desire because we know this communion with Him. We want others to. So it's an invitation rather than a negation.
1: It's a it's a living out of the gospel rather than a formulaic presentation by exactly. words. It's a it's being the gospel. Right.
0: It's a gospel of word and deed. And so, uh, especially in our context today, because. We have created so much fear in the broader community in so many contexts as conservative Christians with our kind of take back America strategy that I find that we have to create the space with our lives for our views to be heard, and that's going to require a lot more sacrificial living than we've been accustomed to, and so that will look a lot more hopefully, like the early church context and I'm excited about that, even though there's some fear on my part of what that will entail but I think for us to move toward a more remnant mindset of being on the as a missional outpost in our culture rather than some dominant superstructure actually makes for our depending on God and Christ more, not less. And so I'm excited about the opportunities that the church will have in North America in days ahead.
1: Speaking then of cultural sensitivity, your book Consuming Jesus Beyond Race and Class Divisions in a Consumer Church, you point out that race problems are not necessarily a thing of the past even though overtly many of the of the structures are gone that within the church there tends to still be race and class divisions could you talk about the the title what you mean by consuming jesus and also the uh, what these race and class divisions look like
0: Right. In terms of the title, uh, Consuming Jesus, Beyond Race and Class Divisions in a Consumer Church, I'm doing two things with the words consuming Jesus. One, negatively, uh, we have with consumer culture uh, these projections we place on Jesus. We make Jesus to be what we want him to be. So consumerism consumes our perspectives on Jesus. And I think here of the movie Teledega Nights* there's this prayer by Ricky Bobby, a Will Ferrell, where you know he's praying to Jesus, eight pounds six ounce baby Jesus, to help him win a race, and other people at the dinner table are talking about how you know they want Jesus, they like Jesus looking like this or Jesus looking like this, but it's all based on their own preferences rather than on who he is in himself. So, the negative aspect is how consumerism impacts us and we distort the biblical perspective on Jesus with our own cultural preferences. The more positive notion, uh, in terms of how I use the words, is that I long for the Church to be consumed by Jesus, and a more noble vision of our concern for the Church being his people, his community, where there are no divisions, uh, including divisions of race and class, that those are uh, torn and uh, destroyed. And so that's the other aspect of how I'm using the words consuming Jesus. And so to to develop that further, uh, the uh, issue of how race is still with us, for example, today, and race and class divisions tend to go together in American culture historically and even in the present day, but there's a a noted book called Divided by Faith on evangelical religion in America where the authors themselves, uh, Emerson and Smith, talk about how you know we're not in the slavery era of uh, race problems. We're not in the Jim Crow era of separate drinking fountains, sitting at the back of the bus. Uh, but in the post-civil rights era, people think that because we don't have these legal structures in the same way that we may have in the past, a lot of people think that racism is no longer with us. And so they developed this uh, at length about how racism, racialization, how race impacts everything from economics, to where you live, to your job, placement, etc., 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 they talk about how race is still with us and that race is a variable, not a constant. It's always fluctuating, racialization and how race impacts American culture. So with that as a backdrop, I would say and argue in the book that one of the ways in which racism is still with us is by way of consumer preference. And we all tend to flock with those or toward those who are like us. And a lot of churches cater to that. And uh, there's been use of this missions principle, the homogeneous unit principle, applied to church growth strategies in America to help the churches grow fastest. You work with people of the same socioeconomic feather. And if you target them, uh, they will flock together and they'll flock quickly. And so it's very difficult for getting churches to move beyond these kinds of principles because it's very pragmatic. It does grow churches quickly when you're working with preferences of people. And people tend to choose churches. If you listen to them, they will choose churches based on what they like rather than where God is calling them. Just listen to how people say, I chose this church because I like the worship. I like the way the pastor speaks. But you don't hear much about, God called my family to this church. And that might be hard to configure at times, you know, what's the call of God like? But Nonetheless, you don't have people even wrestling with that. And so if a pastor is going to talk about race divisions, people are going to be thinking, the normal family is thinking, what does this have to do with my family? I just want to see my kids raised up morally, uh, and I want them to have good Bible teaching. I'll just go to the church next door where we don't have to listen to this stuff. And what does this have to do with the gospel? And, And I also talk about how these things are related to the gospel message, because Paul says in Galatians 3, there's no longer any... Division between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. And while the Jew Gentile issue is different from black white issues, for example, today, because you could become a Jew if you were a Gentile by circumcision and other things, a black person can't become a white person. A white person can't become a black person. But those same divisions between Jews and Gentiles have pertinence and relevance for the divisions we have on racism. And racialization today,
1: and morality seems to be the thing that we 're so focused on with our children, maybe not so much with ourselves, we certainly are with our children. We want our children to be moral. It reminds me of of uh, the music man, you know we want the children not to be playing pool, we want them to be moral, so we mm-hmm. get them into the band. But through all that search for morality or that effort to focus on morality, we can actually get to the place where we think. That we're so, or we're so, morality becomes so important that we look down on sinners. Uh, we just dis- even despise them. We talk about them in in negative, you know, ways of reflecting how we feel about them, as opposed to being like Jesus again, who was friend of sinners, to letting His love flow through us because these are the very people He came to die for. We are all sinners before we're. Before we come to Christ, anyway, and of course, we still sin afterward. And yet, we focus on morality, but the gospel focuses on relationality. And you've talked about the parable of uh, the Good, um, Good Samaritan and how it relates to that.
0: In that context, you know, when Jesus is talking about morality because he's being challenged in the context of the Good Samaritan parable, he's being challenged by a religious leader who asks him, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus you know, gets into that whole discussion of caring for one's neighbor. And Jesus frames morality relationally. Of course, he's concerned as God for morality, but how he shapes or frames morality is always relational. And the religious leaders were often so concerned for a kind of behavioral, individualistic morality, they missed the real essence of the law, which was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor As yourself. And so Jesus says, this is what it means to care for one's neighbor. And our neighbor is not the person I least or I I most like. As Henry Nouwen said, a true community is the place where the person you least like always lives. And so, who does Jesus use as the hero in the story of the Good Samaritan? The Samaritan of extraordinary mercy, as one particular translation frames it. And in that context, it's the religious leaders, such as this man's peer group who don't care for the Jewish man, I'm assuming it's a Jewish man, someone of their own who's been oppressed, who's been beaten, left for dead. It's a Samaritan who comes to his aid. In the issues of race and uh, poverty matters that I'm concerned for in consuming Jesus, I'm not looking at people of different ethnicities as bound up somehow with sin, but how we relate to people or not relate to them based on them being different from us. That's the sin issue, that we don't care. And Jesus is concerned for mercy and justice and sacrifice and breaking down divisions, especially in the church, but also beyond. And Jesus was very concerned. Paul was very concerned for these things in the church.
1: I've always been intrigued by Peter's statement to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that lies within Mm -hmm. you. And it implies that you're not supposed to be always going around blurting out the Hope that lies within you, but you're prepared. You're ready to when the opportunity and the and the circumstances call for it. Mm-hmm. Even Paul said something about in in another context about an individual that he said not to associate with because of his behavior within the church, and they were they were uh, in effect putting him out of the church for a season. And he had to correct them about look. When I said that, I didn't mean not to associate with. Anyone who's a sinner, mm-hmm. I was talking about the individual who purports to be a member of the church who was grievously mm-hmm. uh, and overtly uh, sinning in public, but he said you've got to associate with with uh, sinners and unbelievers, otherwise you have to come out of the world mm-hmm. it 's as though there's a recognition of the fact that relational Christianity is going to, and, and needs to engage." people who are not uh, believers, that means it's right and appropriate to be friends of sinners, and you can do that without taking up their behavior. And Yet, how can we uh, reach out to them, showing them what the gospel is and what Christ is like in the world, if we don't engage them, if, mm-hmm. we're, if we keep them at arm's length, if we just see them as a target of our condemnation. Mm-hmm. and we're constantly trying to pass laws to put them in jail.
0: Exactly. And with Christ, you know, even with the leper, even though you wouldn't say that that was a, a sin issue that the person had leprosy, maybe some people wanted to make the connection, he has this because he's a sinner. But you know, if you look at it from a legalistic sense of the law, simply looking at the letter, not the Spirit, Jesus, by touching the leper, broke the law from that reading. But by touching and healing the leper, he fulfilled the law. And so Jesus is about a relational engagement of transformation of people. And while I share the concern for being holy people, and we're called to be holy people, yet uh, it's a dysfunctional spirituality that so fears engaging the world that we don't have contact. We need to be so captured by God's holy love in Christ that the real force of movement is from us to them. In God's holy love, not a fear of coming out from the world uh, so that we're not tainted. It's again, where's the transformation coming from? Are we being conformed? Are we being transforming agents? And Jesus in John 17 prays, Father, I don't pray that you uh, would take them out of the world, but that you protect them in the world. And Jesus, where did he hang out? And where was Jesus' greatest rebukes going? Who was the audience where his rebukes were? Most forthright toward the religious leaders, and I take that you know head on in terms of a concern about myself, because it wasn't the tax collectors and the sinners, the prostitutes that he attacked, he called them to repent, but his attacks were for those who considered themselves so righteous and they didn't need him that 's where his rebuke was, and it was a stinging rebuke and my question to me as a religious leader is if I read this gospel and i 'm thinking he's attacking mostly. The non believer, the person who is the sinner, quote unquote, I'm missing the point. Am I broken? Am I sensing my own need for him today? That's where I think all Christian leaders should be going, and that we have that sense of desperation for him to show up and transform us. Because then we'll be in a position to speak to people in our midst. You've been watching You're Included a production of Grace Communion International.